the week after. So a couple great events coming up. So Punyatiti is when Bhagwan took Mahasamadhi when he left his body. And Baba's Divyadikcha is the day he received Shaktipak from his guru, Bhagwan Nichananda. I also have another announcement. A lot of people out there in Radio Land have subscribed just for satsang or monthly satsang, but it's a really good um, opportunity to join the Ashram online community. Uh, we've got study group and um, the Thursday meditation, Guru Gita. Uh, it's a great way to really be involved with online and uh, we have confirmation that the Shakti definitely transmits through the airwaves. Another announcement is we've uh, caught up on the uh, podcast. So all of uh, Swamiji's talks from satsang uh, are available now on uh, wherever you listen to your podcast, whether it's Podbean or podcast or any app that you use. But uh, I highly recommend getting involved with them and catching up because... Uh, you, they're amazing. Listen to them when you're driving or even I do them when, I've got, when I'm working, got my headphones on. Um, yeah, I highly recommend it. I'm going to hand over to Davy Ma now and we're going to listen to her talk. Thank you, Girish. Hello, everyone. And that chant we just did actually was because Swami Turiyananda got a brand new <laughs> car to <laughs> No, that's not what it means. <laughs> However, uh, apparently you can get all of that. That's a, a, a chant from Swamiji's early days in Ann Arbor. And uh, there we just, uh, who did the music? Who uploaded all them? One of the ashramites in their seva uploaded some of the uh, chants that uh, are not on the Ann Arbor CD. And it's now available. You're preempting my talk. Huh? What? There was a technical issue. Oh. Yeah, everybody should go back to work. Then we wouldn't have so many technical issues. <laughs> anyway. Anyways, they're now available, some of these uh, chants from Ann Ar the early days in Ann Arbor, and all your music apps. So. And when you listen, you earn a little money for the ashram. So, back to business. Uh, on behalf of Swamiji, who unfortunately has a bad case of laryngitis, I want to welcome you all with great respect and love with all my heart, as he would do and as Baba taught him to do. So the other day, I was going through trying to figure out what I was going to do today. And uh, I came across a letter to the New York Times written by Swamiji in response to a letter that was written uh, to the New York Times. 1971, and Swamiji had been in the ashram of Baba Muktananda for about a month. And his parents sent him this article, a copy of this article. And it was written by a young therapist named Ezra Milstein, who had set off to India in search of a guru. And upon his return, he wrote this article which was published in April of that year, 1971. So he, he uh, 
Anyway, so the summary of Milstein's search, um, which was not dissimilar to Swamiji's in that he went to Germany, he flew to Germany by himself and met up with some other seekers who were wanting to go to India and they bought an old Volkswagen van and set off across country to India. And he calls his article In Search of a True Guru. Did I welcome everyone? Yeah, I did, didn't I? And hello to all the ashramites too. Look, as soon as we can, we hope to have you all back in the room. Let me just say that. It's, uh, anyways, it's a work in progress, I think, basically. Uh, yeah, so Milstein, just I wanted to give you a short summary of Milstein's, just a paragraph of Milstein's uh, letter to the Times, because I thought that it would put Swamiji's response to the Times, you know, would give you an idea of what uh, he had written. So he writes, he says, not that I hadn't tried to get somewhere myself, you know, instead of looking for a guru. I had, in my last years at college, I had some encouraging mystical experiences. And I had read the Vedas, the Upanishads, and memorized long passages from the Bhagavad Gita. Though I hadn't enlightened myself very much, still I felt that it, I was at least as well prepared for my voyage to India as the Beatles had been when they took off in 1968 to seek wisdom at the feet of the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi in 1968. So he was off to Rishikesh, which is where the Maharishi had a big ashram. So he says, with $3,000 in savings converted to traveler's checks and a knapsack on my back... I got a ride to Kennedy Airport one smoggy April morning and took off on the first leg of my multi-stage guru hunt. So after many diversions, and he wasn't fortunate enough to meet Ramdas's people, but he met a lot of, uh, they were either maybe seeking a philosophy or seeking a yoga teacher, but mainly a lot of them were seeking drugs, how to get high. So... Upon arriving at Maharishi's ashram, he was told that the Maharishi was off with the Beach Boys and wasn't available. And a few days later, fed up with the cost of living in the ashram, which was quite expensive uh, back then. It was like $500 a month. And in 1971, that was a lot of money to stay in an ashram. And uh, the meditation practices, he didn't like to meditate or discipline his mind at all. He writes in great detail at the, in his, his, his uh, article. So he decided after that, a few days of uh, discipline and meditating, he decided to pack up his stuff and leave and that his search for a guru was futile. Hence Swamiji's response. So he says, to the editor, my meditation was interrupted once again today. This time, I had a vision of Ezra Milstein's article, New York Times, Sunday, April 4th. Cloistered here in India, that is to say far from the hurly-burly of the real world, and desperate for good vibes and yogic trances as I am, 
I found it somewhat disconcerting. And you have to remember that Swamiji is writing this in a voice that we probably don't hear very often. Actually, my parents, ever concerned that I keep or return to the straight and narrow, were good enough to send the Times clipping here to the ashram where my wife and I and perhaps 50 other Westerners and Indians are practicing yoga under the guidance of Swami Muktananda Paramahansa. So the question presents itself again, should I now give up this fruitless quest, throw off irresponsibility, and return to my literature classes in a Midwestern university where, no doubt, my students need me? Alas, I left because I was myself so much in darkness, despair, doubt, and ignorance that I could not continue to kid myself into believing that I could be anybody's teacher. Five months of yoga have helped considerably, but they have not yet produced enlightenment or even a reasonable facsimile thereof. So it is with some hesitation that I arrogate myself to the role of Ezra Milstein's reprimander or yoga's defender. He has a cause. Yoga needs no defense. The fact that the times can run so lengthy a piece, urbanely negative though it be, is eloquent testimony that yoga's star is brightening in the West. In fact, it constitutes a vast underswelling that will very soon explode on the public consciousness in proportions that only a madman would dare declare publicly at this point. But wasn't he true? Didn't he have the foresight? It's one of uh, Guruji's unique uh, qualities is this vision he has of the impact of certain kinds of things. My own guru, Swami Muktananda, Baba, will have a key role in that interruption through his writings, lectures, and especially through the message that his own radiant love broadcasts. But this all remains to be seen. Actually, I have a lot of sympathy for Ezra's plight. I lived on the Lower East Side while I was in college and graduate school and had a lot of friends who were New York City social workers. All of us felt pretty empty, too, and we would drug ourselves with one thing or another and try to extinguish our unhappiness by sitting under the amplifiers at the Fillmore, cramming our senses separately or together, so full of stimuli as to produce states of consciousness which were satisfying in proportion to their degree of resemblance to death. <laughs> Turning off the mind. Let's show the photos. Is it too late? Is somebody back there? Oh, there. Now, when Swamiji, well, this is after he took sannyas, but he didn't look too dissimilar as to when he, uh, oh, except that he has, a, we have a shot of him in India, don't we? Somewhere in there. All right, he's very, he's, he's, this is just after he took sannyas in 1977. And there he is in the boys' dorm uh, in the middle and uh, with his bunk mates. And uh, Gilly Gilly is in the front trying to eat his toe. He was always hungry. <laughs> and there he is. Uh, that looks like it's in the tea shop, too. Very good. 
Girish was telling me that he doesn't let us show pictures of him, right? We don't have an opportunity because he's always teaching from somebody else. All right, so last September, my wife and I also set out overland from Amsterdam in a beat-up Volkswagen minibus for India. We also spent time in Delhi and Hardwar, Rishikesh, and Benares. We were also hunting for the guru, but we would not have put it that way. Because uh, he has in his article, there's a sort of a chronic complaint uh, about what's going on and so many diversions, you know, material kinds of diversions. We met all kinds of Westerners on the route, many with spiritual aspirations. In England, Holland, and France, we met freaked out Americans, Germans, and Englishmen dropping daily acid and getting set to leave for India any day now. In Istanbul, there was the guy who had been and was going back. He loved to hold forth on his spiritual adventures among India's holy men, especially if there was an admiring crowd of nubile young girls around. In Mashhad, Iran, we camped next to an impressively outfitted VW minibus containing two dainty old Danish gentlemen. They were heading for India too, and they proudly displayed letters of introduction that were certain to, certain to gain them private audience with the mother in Pondicherry and the Dalai Lama in his North Indian retreat. They discoursed charmingly on the evils of Western materialism. In Kabul were the hashish, holiness, and embroidered shirt people. If you got high with them, they would tell you of their Indian adventures, meetings with groovy gurus if your interests lay in that direction, or the killing they were making, buying up gorgeous Indian kurtas for next to nothing and shipping them off, shipping them home to sell, if that was more appealing. In Delhi, there were the hippies hanging out in shabby hotels near fancy Western Kanat Circus. They talked about the scene at Rishikesh and Kathmandu between toques of good Nepalese hash. Are you sad you missed all this? <laughs> It would have been fun for about five minutes. The point, I guess, is that all varieties of youngsters, with a sprinkling of the not-so-young, were on the road with varying degrees of spiritual interest. The commitment of some began and ended with an appreciation of the type, yeah, man, yoga, out of sight. Others, with more zeal, sought actual instruction, and others were in India because they were prepared to devote body and soul, for an indeterminate period to yogic study. You don't find a guru because it seems modish or because you enjoy the self-image, spiritual seeker, guru, hunter. The largest handicap Ezra had in his search was that he overly enjoyed his unique spiritual earnestness and was terrified lest guru hunting was becoming a cliché. Those who actually do find the guru, and such do exist, do so because they have no cards left in their hand apart from the desire, the need to do yoga. They are drowning men clinging to a slender piece of driftwood. They are not glib tourists whose tolerance for struggling with their minds and bodies is exhausted after one session of exercise and a half hour of meditation. 
After five months of regular daily meditation, my own frail mind is still drowned in impertinent thoughts. Some of them at today's session, lamentably, were about Ezra Milstein. He, uh, Ezra Milstein became a photographer, actually, and uh, he's still a therapist, I think. But anyways, he's still alive and doing well with his uh, photography. Stories of actually finding the guru are legion. In our own case, my wife and I were led, beginning on our second day in India, from event to improbable event, as though it were all planned for us. We were delivered by bizarre circumstances to a very pure and saintly yogi who taught us such exotica as meditation, yogic breathing and postures, cloth swallowing, a 24-foot bandage-like cloth is ingested and then pulled out. Don't let go of that end. Cleaning the stomach and small intestine of excess mucus and acid. Oddly enough, it is a wonderful specific for digestive problems once the first waves of revulsion and terror are overcome. Nasal passage cleansing by means of a string inserted in the nostril and pulled out the mouth and abdominal cleansing by rolling the muscles like a belly dancer. It's hard to imagine the Swamiji of today doing all this. <laughs> he was really genuinely looking for something to go put himself through all this. It was all very difficult, and I wanted to run away many times. But then, where was there to go? When he left to teach in the West, we planned to return to America. We decided to visit the ashram here for what was to be a week's stay. People who are really interested in yoga always come to hear about the worthwhile places. There is a useful and reliable grapevine for those who have ears to hear. If Ezra's quest had had enough energy to investigate a second ashram, he might have found something more substantial. After a few days in the atmosphere here, we were trapped, both by Baba's magnetism and the utter integrity of the manner of operation of the ashram. Ezra is turned off by the pie in the sky, good vibes, Pollyannish hippie trip under the rules of which not to feel them good vibes, was to commit a crime against the life of the group as a whole. As a grumpy refugee from academic rationalism, I've had the same distasteful experience. At 29, I was young and hirsute enough to mix in that world, but in the caves of the hippie international spa at Matal Crete, I discovered that in some subtle way, I really was not young enough. The hippie moral fascism was at work. With all its aggressive lovingness, I can out-love and out-positive you to death. <laughs> We're all one family here, right? So? So, sure, we can use your stove. And? So what if your car gets stuck in the sand? Who cares about such mundane things? And? And we can borrow the car, right? Wow, wow, we all love each other. A little soup was slopped on your sleeping bag, man. I used your silk shawl to wipe it up. Wow, we're so far out, loose hanging and spiritual here that we don't notice things on that plane. Don't be so uptight, man. Don't be uptight. 
We stayed with peers after that. The good vibes, no negativity, or drop-dead hippie morality was a bit too trying, heavy. Ezra, there is no pseudo-spirituality in a place where the spirit is really king. Add in the presence of a real master. The Bhagavad Gita says, He who withdraws himself from actions but ponders on their pleasures in his heart, he is under a delusion and is a false follower of the path. Action is greater than inaction. Perform, therefore, your task in life. Even the life of the body could not be if there were no action. If you leave the meditation hall here with the glazed look that is designed to tell the world, I'm so spiritual, you are likely to get slapped on the head by Baba and be told to wake up. Baba insists on painstaking attention to the everyday details of life, no daydreaming. As Baba Ramdas, the former Dr. Richard Alpert of Leary Alpert fame, and one of Baba's pupils now, says, you must be here now. Every moment must be lived with total attention. It is always a three and two count in the bottom of the ninth. Henry Aaron, a great baseball player, is always at the plate, and you are always playing third base. The standard wiped-out freak doesn't last here. The discipline is tight, and he is tied to a regular schedule of demanding activity with no inessential talking, no drugs, and an absolute submission to an authority, Baba, which, though perfectly wise and loving, is also perfectly tough. I've seen tears shed as, as the long hair and beard are shaved, but off they come nonetheless. It's more like boot camp than Woodstock. But if you don't always get what you want here, you do, as the Rolling Stones know, get what you need. This is what true spirituality and true guruship is about. It is supremely tough-minded and anything but withdrawn and amorphous. And Swamiji's discipline, of course, is uh, different. You know, if people didn't go to programs in Baba's ashram, they sometimes got cold water <laughs> poured on them to wake them up. And people were terrified to wag a program. In fact, Swamiji was just telling a story, a Baba story, about Girija wagged a program, and she was in the girl's dorm, his ex-wife, Girija. And uh, uh, Baba came in, and she was hiding from him. She was hiding behind the beds, and he'd take a step forward, and she'd sneak into another bed where she could get hide from him more. That's how terrified, that's how terrified people were to be caught by Baba wagging a, a program. Swamiji's, he likes us to go to the programs, but his discipline is very different. Not so different, really, but it manifests differently, which is that you should be in a happy state all the time. Be at peace with yourself in every moment. Now, imagine living like that, right? So any bad mood was met with that stern discipline. You should be happy 
now. Be here now. <laughs> Be happy now. Be happy in this moment. And how long does it take to attain that? Garisha express, expressed it well. When you get rid of your tearing thoughts, basically, when you're free of your tearing thoughts, then happiness is uh, available in every moment. When we conquer, at least, you know, conquer anger, at least it shouldn't come up all the time and we shouldn't speak from it, and overcome fear, develop faith, and not allow ourselves to sink into depression. And all these things, anger, fear, sadness, as Swamiji talks about, are, arise from tearing thoughts, mainly from uh, thinking impure thoughts about ourselves, self-hatred, disliking ourselves. Everything can be traced to that, that feeling of separation, the feeling of loneliness, the feeling of lack, the feeling of limitation. It can all be traced traced to uh, not liking ourselves, not giving ourselves the love we deserve and honoring ourselves, honoring that part of us that Swamiji, Guruji calls on us to remember, to remember the self, because in an instant when we remember the self, all those tearing thoughts hopefully will disappear. And if they don't, then you have to do as Girish said, you have to say the mantra. So this is what true spirituality and true guruship is about. I think I read that, didn't I? Western stereotypes notwithstanding. It's not withdrawn or amorphous, he's saying. And yoga even has a social conscience. In the actions of the best men, others find their rule of action. The path that a great man follows becomes a guide to the world. It blends the inner and the outer, detachment and engagement, power and lawfulness, you control the mind so that you can live each moment, not so that you drift off in a fog. Baba's ideal is a vigorous, fearless, active, loving individual. He even keeps meditation down to a reasonable minimum and makes sure that his aspirants put in about four hours of hard manual labor each day. Unlike the ashram mentioned in the article, there is no required fee and service to the guru is rendered through a program of work on the grounds and in the kitchen and dining and meeting halls. But in defense of payment for spiritual instruction, it should be pointed out that a seeker gets back spiritually exactly what he gives. This is an iron law. And it often makes sense to require an initial sacrifice in the unsubtle area of finances though obviously this theory can sometimes be used to justify shabby practice. Here, meditation is not sitting for long hours on a mountaintop. It should flow naturally from the harmony and coherence of our whole life. Baba discourages long sessions, but strongly encourages spontaneous but regular practice. Can meditation save the world? In my opinion, yes doesn't matter. We can just watch its growth in the West. The meditator leaves his meditation renewed, relaxed, refreshed 
with a firmer idea of who he is and an increased, not decreased, alertness. As I write this, I have a nagging sense of unfairness to Ezra Milstein. I, share, I have shared most of his attitudes at one time or another. I am the same guy who laughed at a friend who went searching for truth in India and Japan a few years ago. I was always talking about the great Western tradition in those days, invoking Aristotle, Descartes, and Hume like a catechism. So I've eaten crow as well as cloth on this trip. Ezra does own up to his status as a spiritual tourist by the end of the article. I hope he develops the determination he lacked last year. Still, it is not a good idea to cheapen yoga and religion by using it as a gimmick upon which to hang a travel article. Ezra, if Ezra is ready to face expiation, he might like it here. He has some promising characteristics, energy, innocence of a kind, and discontent. Who can even tell? Ezra may yet find his guru through the New York Times. Further, further out things happen around here every day. So, unfortunately, the Times didn't print Swamiji's response, but it's out there. We should put it on... Uh, we should put it up. Should we? We should put it on his blog. Don't you, should we put it on his blog, or is it too critical of poor Ezra? I don't know. We'll think about it. <laughs> we'll think about it. All right, so what time did I start? I was going to do a question and answer with Swamiji. Should I do it? Yeah. All right. All right, I'll just do one, and then we'll do the mantras, and then we'll meditate. How's that? You ready, guys, out there? Okay. Here we go. I just have to find the right next page. I'm not sure I've got the right pages here. Where's page three? One, this has to be page three. It must be here somewhere. All right. I've heard an ordinary question. Now, these are questions and answers from 1980, the Siddhapath 1980, and Baba was in uh, Los Angeles at the time. And these questions are to Swamiji, which he answered in the Siddhapath. I've heard that ordinary people often do better at Siddha Yoga than seekers who have dabbled at many paths. Why is this so? Once a seeker came, Swamiji answers, once a seeker came to a great Sufi master for spiritual instruction, the master said, I will teach you, but first you must partake of my food. He placed a sumptuous feast on the table, and the seeker ate with gusto. When he had eaten his fill, the guru brought out still another dish. Fearing to offend, the seeker painfully ate what was offered. The guru hovered menacingly before him with yet another dish. The seeker said, O oh master, have mercy. I cannot possibly eat another bite. The guru replied, Just so. Your spiritual condition is indigestion. 
You are so full of teachings from so many books and teachers. It is impossible for me to put even one more morsel inside of you. Ouch. <laughs> the essence of learning has been summed up as a threefold process, shravana, manana, and nididasana. Hearing the teaching, thinking the teaching, and incorporating it through meditation. To begin to learn then, we have first have to listen. That involves being open to the guru and his teachings. But this is also true. The longer we do practice yoga, the more that becomes important. It's easy sometimes to be open when you're first learning. But as you go on and the practices become part of our lives, the listening can diminish a little when the guru is trying to teach us something. So always be open. Always maintain a good attitude, an open attitude. This is easy to say, but not so easy to practice. Whatever we learn, we filter through the network of prejudices, understandings, and preferences that we have acquired in life. The situation is particularly difficult if we are well-read in the spiritual field and feel smug about our grasp of the truth. It is often painfully true that we can see everyone else's bad tendencies and faulty understandings, but not our own. It is often the case that a naive seeker will do much better than a learned seeker who comes to the guru after exploring many paths and writings. But if such a seeker can open in faith and trust the guru, he can rise very high. The guru has the means to convert his previous studies into something positive. When the guru had stuffed his disciple with food, he said, now stay. A learned seeker is so filled with spiritual concepts that he may need a time to be decontaminated by simple tasks and mundane assignments. If he can accept this, his previous learning will be balanced and ultimately become beneficial to him. And I think this is true for everyone who enters into an ashram, and this ashram also. Because when we first, in the entry into the ashram can be a bit of a burn, depending on what our issues, what our tendencies are. And it seems like the shakti, the divine energy, or the guru's grace puts us in situations where we're going to burn through those tendencies so that they become a seed, so they don't show up and make us miserable. And so it's, uh, that's called tapasya. A Zen master said, there is no teaching, only the appropriate medicine for the appropriate block. Blocks are undigested concepts that clog the system. That is, they are concepts that are thought of as real in themselves instead of symbols of the self. Such concepts harden and eventually distort the flow of energy within the subtle body. The trick is not to be weighed down by preconceptions and to be as simple as possible. Okay, let's, uh, we'll end with that. And uh, I want to once again thank you for joining us tonight, and we hope to see you very soon. 
we're going to do the goddess mantras. We haven't done them for a while because our satsangs have been so filled, but I was feeling bad for the people on our prayer list and the people, you know, suffering from the pandemic financially, emotionally, intellectually. And so we say these mantras to invoke the grace of the guru, to invoke the grace of the shakti, to bless and protect everyone, and to always remember that love, love can overcome everything. Love can overcome lockdown. We need medical science to overcome the pandemic, but love makes everything possible. All right. Is there anything else I'm supposed to say? No? All right. I'll see you when we do darshan. So you can say the mantra. The mantra is Om, I'm, Rim, Klim, Shrim, Doom. Is that right? Para Shakti Namaha. So we'll do 108 times. Is that right? Shall we do 108 or is that too many? That's a lot, isn't it? 54. We'll do 54 because it's a long mantra. Anyways, thank you for joining us for this. Thank you.
Yeah. Hey. 
now for about 10 minutes and we can take on some of those great G statements that uh, Baba and Swamiji used contemplate them look for that deepest most intimate space that arises within you reflect on it Embrace it, contemplate it. 